This is the last night of the meeting, and it does seem like it has gone by ever so quickly. Of course, that's typical of all of life. I was thinking earlier tonight as uh, you all were coming in to find your place in the meeting house here, and thinking back to years gone by when meetings used to last for a week, and then you can go even back further beyond that when they lasted for two weeks, and even would start on one Sunday and go until the through the two weeks to the next, the third Sunday, and then you can even go back further until they lasted even longer than that. And people would come every night and fill up the meeting house or the brush arbor or the tent. And people from the community would come in. But we live in different times, but you've been so very good about coming and appreciate that so very much. All of the members here, thank you for your uh, attendance and presence each night and for all that have come. We've had several visitors each night and have some tonight for which we're thankful. And I appreciate everything that has been done, every prayer that has been prayed before and during the meeting, every invitation that you've extended to people that you know and around the community to come, and sister congregations. I appreciate that so very much. Appreciate your hospitality. Uh, the Mayberries last night and Terry and Stella Smith tonight had a good meal in their home and enjoyed some fellowship there with, with those that were present. Enjoyed that so very much. I'm grateful for everything that was done. I have gone and held a, a few meetings in different places and uh, never felt like anything other than a visiting preacher. But that's not true here. I felt very much at home. Uh, I, of course, I've been here before, but still, even back then, reflecting, feel very much at home, and you've made me feel that way, and I'm grateful to you for it. Appreciate the Bibbies and the good work they're doing here, and to get to know them and uh, be with them this week and has been a delight. And I appreciate the elders of this congregation, the invitation that's extended to me and the work that's being done here. And I want to plead with you, brethren, now listen to me. I want to plead with you tonight. Don't let the devil get in this congregation and stir something up and ruin what you've got here. There seems to be a fine spirit here. You seem to love each other and care about each other. You seem to be prospering somewhat, in number at least. And I trust in spirit. Don't let the devil get in here and stir something up and ruin what you have. And if he can use you by your feelings being hurt or in some way your feelings on your sleeve or that chip on your shoulder or whatever it is, don't let that happen. And if something gets amiss, you go to whoever it is and, and like brethren, work it out and resolve it and love each other. And uh, don't let the devil ruin what you've got going. Now, <clears throat> there are any number of topics and ideas that we could spend our time studying about, and we've looked at a few of those through the course of the meeting, but there are some great themes and ideas in the Bible, and those things could be studied and they would never be exhausted. How could we ever exhaust a study and meditation of the love of God? How could we ever plumb the depths of the concepts of the grace of God? The more we study the Bible and the more we learn about the love of God and the grace of God in many of those other great subjects and themes, the deeper our appreciation and understanding of those things can be. 
And I want to talk to you tonight about something that I think to be one of those great subjects, and that's heaven. I'm sure you think about heaven. And I want us to look at it from the standpoint of heaven serving as a motivation to us for godly living. There are a lot of things that can motivate us. And they all have their place. We can be motivated by fear. Paul said to the Corinthians in the second epistle, chapter 5 and about verse 10 or 11, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, the writer says, We therefore, having received a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Fear can be a motivator. Now, it's not the only motivator, and in and of itself will not be a sufficient motivator, but it can be a great motivator. There were a lot of things that I did not do as a boy and a teenager because of what I thought might happen to me if my daddy found out. Fear was a motivator. Now, I don't think I ever would have been a criminal, but there was a whole lot of mischief I didn't get into. And I'll tell you, if the police had ever come to get me and take me away, I would have pled guilty and asked for a life sentence. Don't send me home to my daddy. <laughs> Don't do that. Just lock me up and keep me. And I'll be better off there than I would be if you send me home. And uh, fear was a motivator. Now, it wasn't always sufficient, but it was a motivator. Love is a great motivation. In Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul said, Neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith that works by love. There's our motivation. And of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and the first three verses, Paul shows that whatever we might do or possess in the way of good qualities like knowledge or tongues or giving all of our gifts to feed the poor, whatever we might do, if we lack the element of love in the service that we render, it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't help us, the one that does it or possesses it at all. And so love is a great motivator. And I want to try to develop tonight the idea to show us how heaven can be a great motivator. How it can provide great motivation to us to live the life that God desires that we live and that I trust that you do want to live. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel down to this point in time, I hope tonight that you'll think about heaven and what you are destined to miss outside of Christ, and let heaven motivate you to want to obey the gospel and become a child of God. And if you're a child of God and you're not faithful to the Lord, and you'll realize what you have forfeited in the way of your inheritance, and you'll want to come back to Christ and be restored and miss hell, as I mentioned in one lesson earlier already in this meeting, somehow or other, it's going to be worse for those individuals who have obeyed the gospel and then are lost than if they'd never obeyed the gospel at all. And I may not and, and do not pretend to know fully how that might be, but I know that that's exactly the condition that Peter describes in the second chapter of his second epistle when he says that if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of salvation than after they've known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Somehow, some way, it's going to be worse off for us in this assembly tonight who are children of God if we are lost. 
than those who've never obeyed the gospel. And I simply suggest, among other things, one way that it will be worse off is the mental torment with which we will languish in torment with the knowledge we had escaped this place. We had done what God wanted us to do to avoid this being our eternal destiny and home, and now here we are. And I hope that the lesson tonight will help you to think about coming back to your first love if you've left him. And if you're a faithful child of God, I hope it will serve to motivate you to remain faithful. So many things pull at your affections, demand your time, and it's so easy to get preoccupied with the things of this life that we begin to sort of drift. Remember Hebrews 2? We sort of begin to drift away from things, and spiritual things become less and less important to us. Don't you let that happen. And I hope the knowledge of what awaits us in heaven will help to motivate us to make our calling and election sure, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now here's where we're going to go, and we've got to go very quickly. I want to think first of all about how heaven is characterized to us. And I'm not thinking now so much about the physical description that is given of heaven that I, I personally believe to be a figurative description where the Lord takes things that are very beautiful and precious and expensive in human eyes and uh, human experience and uses those to describe a spiritual place. Remember, Paul said flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So heaven is not a material place, it's a spiritual realm. It's a spiritual place. And the description that God gives in the book of Revelation and even other places somewhat of what heaven will be like is given so that it can appeal to the mind and the knowledge of man in ways that we can understand to give us some image, picture of what it's going to be like. But I'm not thinking so much now about the physical appearance and the physical description. I want to think about some other things that characterize heaven. First of all, it is a place where God lives. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, John writes and says that I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And he, God himself, will be with them and be their God. One of the things about heaven is we're going to live with God. Now in John chapter 14, in those also familiar verses, when Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. Then he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. A place for you where? In God's house in the dwelling place of God. Let me pause here and quickly make this observation with you folks. Jesus did not leave heaven after Calvary and ascend back, or leave the earth and ascend back to heaven to build heaven. Heaven was already there. Remember when he preached and taught him the Sermon on the Mount about the matter of taking oaths and swearing. And he said, swear not by heaven, for that's God's throne. Nor by the earth, that's his footstool. Heaven is already there. What did he do? What did he mean when he said, I go to prepare a place for you? He wasn't going to build heaven, but he was going back to heaven to make in heaven a place for us. All of us can remember in days gone by when company would stop by unexpectedly, and you'd be at the dinner table, and what did you do? You put down another plate. You, you slid around the table a little closer, and you made a place for those guests to sit down. 
When Jesus died at Calvary and ascended back to heaven, he went back to heaven not to build heaven, it was already there, but to make in heaven a place for us. Make a reservation for us, if you will. And that one of the things about heaven then that we want to think about is it's where God lives. And we can be with him now. But we're already with him, aren't we? In a sense. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18, Paul uh, writes that the Lord says, Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you unto myself, and I will be unto you a father, and you shall be unto me sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 5, the writer says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do unto me. And so we, there's a sense in which the Lord is already with us. Now hold that thought. I'm going to come back to that and... and Flesh it out a little more and, and finish it in just a minute. But I want you to think about another characterization of heaven. It is a place, Revelation 21, 4, where there's no sorrow, no crying, no death, no pain, no tears. God, he said, shall wipe away all of their tears and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither will there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you imagine living without pain? Can you imagine living without any sorrow at all? Can you imagine living where there will never be another death? I mentioned to someone tonight already. spent two hours at the funeral home this afternoon in Carthage before I left to come up here. have to go back tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock for the funeral. One of the things about heaven, there won't be any more funerals because there won't be any death. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no sorrows. There'll be no tears. Now we do not realize that here on earth, but the Bible does depict that Christianity is a life of joy. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And so here's the fruit of the Spirit, and a part of it is joy. In John 16 and verse 22, Jesus said that now you have sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned into joy, and no man will be able to take it away from you. And so there is a measure of joy that we already realize here in this world, but in heaven there will be no more crying. It probably hasn't been all that long ago that you did some crying. But in heaven there won't be any crying. There won't be any sorrow. No more broken hearts. No more disappointments. About anything. And then we can characterize heaven as a place where there will be no more sin. Revelation 21 in verse 27 says that neither shall there any enter in, into it anything that defileth, neither that which maketh an abomination or maketh a lie, but they whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be no sin in heaven. There will be no temptation in heaven. 
We cannot say that we do not sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we cannot say that we do not sin. Verse 10, we cannot say we have not sinned. I've heard, I've not talked to them directly, but I've known of two men who made the bold claim that they didn't sin anymore. And of course, there are some religious groups that believe that once you get a second working of grace through the Holy Spirit, that you stop sinning. But the Bible doesn't teach that. And that's why 1 John 1 verse 7 says, or first nine, rather verse 9 says, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But in heaven there will be no sin. Nothing will be able to gain entrance into heaven that would any way defile it or work or make an abomination or make a lie. There won't be any of that there. Now, I said that I was going to come back to this first idea. I want to tie all three of these together. This idea of no sin, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. That is, that you don't sin at all. That's our goal and aspiration. When you get up in the morning, all of us who are faithful children of God will get up and start out tomorrow morning with the desire not to commit a single solitary sin. But we will probably pillow our head tomorrow night having failed to reach that goal. But that's our desire. That's the way we try to live without sin. And yet he goes on to say, yet if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He's the propitiation not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world but in heaven you see we'll realize that goal in heaven we will realize what it is like to live the Christian life without a sprinkling without a measure of the joys and the tribulations that accompany this life they won't be allowed into heaven and in heaven, even though now we realize the fellowship of God and God is with us, in heaven we will realize that in the fullness of the reality as we can see it and we're there. Heaven is the fulfillment of the desire of the Christian to be in the presence of God, to live without sin, and to have the joy and the peace and the happiness and all that goes with the abundant life to the fullest measure without the limitations of the flesh and this world. That's what heaven is. It's where God in essence says to all of his faithful children who have been trying to live that life, now come into this spiritual realm with me and live it to the fullest. Now, that doesn't have much appeal to a man or a woman whose life is characterized as just trying to have a little religion to, to appease God while I go about doing what I really want to do and have fun. Heaven's not going to be very appealing to that kind of person. It won't be much of a motivation for godly living. But to the saint, to the faithful child of God, it's a motivation. There in heaven I'll be able to do and realize in the fullness of its reality what I'm trying to realize and enjoy here. Only I won't have to be bothered with this flesh or this material world in which I live through whom temptations come, through whom sorrows and tribulations come, 
And I'll be able to be in the presence of God in a way and see it that I've never seen it before. But not only is how heaven is characterized something that motivates us then, but I want you to think about the citizenship of heaven as a motivation. Genesis chapter 25 in verse 8 it says of Abraham that Abraham gave up the ghost and he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And then it has this interesting phrase at the end of that verse it says, and he was gathered to his people. Some have read that and thought, well that means that Abraham was buried with his kinfolk. No he wasn't. He's buried with Sarah. But Abraham didn't live with his kinfolk, remember. He'd left his family, his country, to go out to a place that God would after show him for an inheritance. He buried, had to buy that cave of Machpelah in which to bury Sarah. And though he's buried with her, that's not what Genesis 25 is talking about. The same phrase is found when it comes to the death of Isaac in Genesis chapter 35 and about verse 29, I believe it is. It's the last verse of Genesis 35. And it's also found the very last verse, I believe it's verse 33 of Genesis chapter 49 in regard to Jacob. He was gathered to his people. Now one of the ways that I am sure that it is not talking about being buried, their body being deposited with the rest of the family's remain somewhere is because in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 24 it says the same thing about Aaron. God told Moses that Aaron was going to die and he would be gathered to his people but the children of Israel out wandering in that wilderness. They don't have any family cemeteries. They don't have a family sepulcher in which to place their, their earthly remains. And the same thing is also said in the 27th chapter of the book of Numbers about Moses. And nobody knows where Moses' body was buried because God buried it. I know that Brother Honeycutt and others, maybe all of you have heard the story years ago about a young man that fell asleep in Brother N.B. Hardiman's Bible class down at Freed Hardiman College back then. And uh, Brother Hardiman woke him up. And, and uh, told him, said, uh, we were just discussing and asked the question, where did God bury Moses? And he said, well, Brother Hardiman, I used to know, but I forgot. And Brother Hardiman said, pity, 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 the only man that ever knew where Moses' body was buried, and he's forgotten. Well, nobody knows where Moses' body was buried, so his being gathered to his people isn't talking about his earthly remains. What's it talking about? It's talking about where his soul went into eternity. When Abraham's soul, when Isaac's soul, and Jacob's soul, and Aaron and Moses' soul, when they left their body, they were gathered to their people over in the eternal realm. And if you want to find a description of what the two places, only two places into which one could have gone in that day and time. Read Luke 16, 19 to 31 about the rich man and Lazarus. And we trust and are fairly certain about Abraham and Moses to be sure. But we trust they went into that place where the righteous go. They were gathered to their people. 
In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, when Jesus begins to depict that scene at the judgment, the Son of Man comes in His glory with all of His holy angels, and all nations are gathered before Him, and they'll be divided or separated before Him as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats, the goats on the right hand, the, go uh, the sheep on the right hand, and the goats on the left. What is that? Our people. I'm going to be in one of those two classes. Either on the right hand of the Lord with the sheep or the left hand with the goats. And if the Lord tarries until the day that my spirit leaves my body and beyond so that I experience death and go out into the eternal realm, when my soul leaves my body, I'm going to go and be gathered with my people, either those goats on the left or the sheep on the right. It ought to be a great motivation then to want to be with the citizens of heaven. Those that are there on the right hand of God. Isn't it pleasant to think about being reunited with those that we love? Now it may be that there could be something in their life and heart that we didn't know about that will preclude their being allowed to enter into heaven. But until the judgment, and we know that, don't we cherish the memories of those that we love and look forward to the day of being reunited with them? I'm confident that every child of God in this assembly tonight, and maybe even those that aren't children of God, at least think about seeing people we love again on the other side. Parent or parents, a mate, a child, a grandchild, a mentor, dear friend. I could begin to name some folks. You've got a list, just like I do. People that I want to see. And that ought to be a motivation to us to want to live right so we can see them again. I take no comfort in the thought of being re reunited with any loved ones that are lost. I don't find any comfort in that whatsoever. But I do take, take comfort in the thought of being reunited with those that I believe, I trust, will be in heaven. And then you think about others. Those, what about the great characters we read about in the Bible? To finally see and know the Apostle Paul. To finally see and know Barnabas. To finally see and know Abraham. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that we talked about last night. To see those men. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Ruth. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Great people. And to see them. And I don't know if we'll care to talk about it or not, but maybe to say, I remember reading about you. You don't know how much you helped me. As I read about you and your life in my Bible. There are folks that the citizenship of heaven can be a motivation. Let me hastily add here, 
before we moved our final point. That if the Lord tarries and you and I step through that veil into eternity, it may well be that there will be some that we leave behind that might think in that same way. I want to live where when I'm gone, my wife, if she survives me, my children, my grandchildren, all that I've known and loved will think about me and say, I, we, we believe he'll be in heaven and we want to go see him. Are you living that way tonight? Are you living in such a way that when your life is done, those that love you, know you, will believe that you really are in heaven? Not just the wishful dream of a of a loving heart that wants to believe above all else. I've stood by many a casket holding the body of an individual who never did obey the gospel and heard a mother or a daddy or a wife or a husband say, at least they're not suffering anymore. They're wrong. They're suffering like they never did suffer in this world and never could have. And will forever they weren't saved but are you living in that way so that they can say that oh we, we know they're resting blessed are the dead that die in the Lord saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them Revelation 14 13 so there's the citizenship of heaven that motivates us because heaven is full of the best people that have ever lived on this earth but last of all, <clears throat> in spite of all of those great people that will be there, there's the Christ in heaven. John 14, Jesus said to those disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Philippians 1 in verse 23, Paul said, I'm in a strait betwixt the two, having the desire to depart and be with the Lord which is far better. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he said, while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We'd rather be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. To be with Christ. In those familiar passages that you hear a lot at funerals, and in some places there are certain, some of those that are appropriate, 1 Thessalonians 4, Verse 13, Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord with the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Isn't that a motivation? To be with Christ. John said in 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, it doth not now or doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. 
We've sung about him. We've read about him. We've dreamed or tried to imagine what he looks like. We, we commemorate his body and his blood here every first day of the week around the Lord's table. But finally to be able to look into his eyes, to look into his face as it were, the face of the one that died for us. And to be like him. And to be with him forever and ever and ever. To the old dead church in Sardis that had a name that they lived, Jesus said, but you're really dead. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, he said, there are some, there are a few, even in Sardis that shall, watch it now, walk with me in white, for they are worthy to walk with Jesus. What a day that would be. To be able to be with him and know that it will never end. Nothing will ever separate us. Take us away from him. The devil can't get in to ruin and mar that like he did in the Garden of Eden. The world will not interfere because the world is gone. Christ. Revelation 3 and 20 to the church at Laodicea said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open, I will come in unto him and sup with him and he with me. That's what the Lord wants to do. He'll do that with us now, but think about being able to be with him forever and ever and ever. Now that may not mean much to somebody who's in love with this world. It certainly doesn't mean much to a child of God who is crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open shame, Hebrews 6. But it ought to mean the world, more than the world, to a faithful child of God. When we step through that veil into eternity to await the judgment, to know we can go to live with God forever in heaven. Heaven ought to be a great motivation to us to live a godly life because of what heaven's going to be like, because of who is going to be there, and especially because of Jesus, whom we'll see and with whom we'll live. He died to give us that privilege and that possibility. In Philippians 3.20, Paul said, Our conversation, that is our manner of life, is in heaven from which also we look for a Savior. Our manner of life is in heaven. Is yours. You want to go to heaven when life is over. And who knows when your life will end. I certainly don't know when mine will end. And we have a tendency to take life for granted, don't we? If you step through that veil tonight, will heaven be your eternal home? Are you ready to make that transition from this world to the eternal and meet God at the day of judgment I cannot think of anything more sobering than to think about death and the judgment and to realize it is forever it's never going to end And only can that be a thought that thrills us and fills us with joy and anticipation only if we're 
prepared to go to heaven. But if you know in your heart of hearts tonight that heaven would not be your eternal home, how can you tarry? Like Saul of Tarsus was asked by Ananias, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. If you've done that and you need to come back to your first love, why would you wait? Why would you risk a moment? And risk being lost in a devil's hell forever and ever. The, de the hell was not prepared for people. If I understand Matthew 25. Now people will be sent into hell. The vast majority of them will. But in verse 41 of Matthew 25. Jesus when he says to those goats on the left. Depart from me. Into an eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. But you see, we're going to be gathered to our people. And if I've let the devil be my father and my master, then I'll be gathered to my people. But God didn't prepare hell for people. He prepared heaven for us to live with Him. Made it possible through His Son. But He will accept your choice or mine to refuse heaven and prefer hell. What about you tonight? Do you need to obey the gospel and become a Christian? Won't you do it? Do you need to be restored to your first love? Won't you do that, please? Let us pray with you and pray for you. We hope that you will, and we hope as we stand and sing together, we'll encourage you to so do while we, do, while we stand.